This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. I'd like to welcome you back to our ongoing series about people who work in homelessness services. Up until now, we've been focusing mostly on street homelessness, you know, nurse, outreach, social worker, uh, a psychiatrist, people who work with really the most desperate cases, people who are living on the street who have no shelter whatsoever. But the reality is that in New York City, most homeless people live within the shelter system. There is a right to shelter here. You can get a roof over your head if you want one and you feel comfortable in a shelter. And most of the people in New York City shelters are our families. They're mothers and children. And so I wanted to, in this episode, take you inside that world, actually inside a, a real shelter. So for this episode, I spoke with Tamara Ortiz. She is the Assistant Vice President for Supportive Services at WIN, an organization that runs a network of shelters within the city. And her job is to make sure that the people staying at wind shelters can get back on their feet, that the services are there to give them a hand and help them eventually find their way back into permanent housing and a more stable situation. They provide things like daycare and assistance finding a new job or a better job that pays them enough that they can pay their rent. And I think I'm hoping that this episode maybe dispels some stereotypes about what it means to be homeless, what a shelter does, what life might be like inside a shelter. I hope you enjoy What's your name and what do you do? My name is Tamara Ortiz. I'm Assistant Vice President of Supportive Services at WIN. And what's WIN? WIN is a non-for-profit organization that provides temporary housing to families and support housing to families in need. So you run shelters? Yes, we do. Uh, how many shelters do you guys run right now? We currently have 11 shelters, 10 of family shelters. One is a single women's shelter. Just one? Just one. And the rest is mothers and mothers and kids? Correct. I think that when most people think about homelessness and individuals who are homeless, they're picturing people who live on the street. That's probably the stereotype. That's a misconception. It's not the majority of people dealing with homelessness. Families that are dealing with homelessness are not seen in the streets. They're not the ones that we usually assume are the only individuals dealing with homelessness. Homelessness for families is very different. And um, what we typically assume homelessness is the person in the street dealing with hunger, dealing with mental illness. But families are usually in very safe environments like shelters. And so you don't necessarily see them out in the public. And you do supportive services for families. So what does that mean? What is exactly your role in the shelter? So typically what we have a model, right? A model of families coming into shelter. Families that come, we have serv social services that support clients. We screen them. Mm -hmm. We get a better understanding of their circumstances. But supportive services are those additional elements that help stabilize a family. There are things like childcare, there are recreation services, there are Thrive social workers, and there's income building. So those additional services really allow us to really develop a model and a path 
to find the best winning outcome for families. <laughs> That's the name of that. That's the name. And so a way to think about that is you direct the services that help people get on their feet. And how long have you been doing this for? I've been at Win for 23 years. 23. Absolutely very proud of that. And how did you start doing this? So I provided support services. I supervised the child care and the recreation programs for many years. And so I d- directly work with the children that were living with the families and the parents. Um, we provide child care. And that's one of the things when a, if there's a mother or a father living with children, one of the things to stabilize a family is to offer them, if there's a, a mother working with their children and is coming into shelter, typically their child care services have somewhat been disconnected. And so providing some stability for a mother that's working in order to maintain her employment, having childcare on site is a support to a family immediately. You're providing childcare at the shelter. Correct. That right there is probably very far off from what people imagine a shelter to be. That, you know, this is a place where a working woman lives and someone can take care of her child where she goes to her job. In some of my previous interviews, I was talking about the intake shelters where it's basically a giant gymnasium where people have beds. This seems like it's something very, very different. It is very different. It's something that allows a parent to feel safe and secure and able to maintain routines. That's what families are lacking when they're dealing with homelessness. People are looking to stabilize their routines and to have safe places to leave their children. Take me back when you started 23 years ago. What got you into this line of work? So I started off as a volunteer. I was in college, yeah. yeah, looking for some spare time to give back. It's rewarding to give back. And so I found myself working with children that were dealing with homelessness in a childcare environment. It fed something that was lacking in my life. I felt like I was giving back to yeah. a population that needed people that were very caring and nurturing. It's just a sensation of seeing how children and families that come in feeling very confused, finding an environment that there's individuals that are very caring Mm -hmm. and um, in tune with providing something to their children Mm -hmm. and to them. And did you then work as a, a, I guess, a a child care provider from there on or... I then moved into a head teacher's position. Teaching in shelter is a very untraditional um, description. We do teach children their academics. We do t- encourage our children to learn their ABCs and one, two, threes. But we also teach them to cope, to cope with the circumstances that they're faced with in their family circumstances at the moment. I'm trying to picture this. Are, is this sort of like a pre-K classroom, essentially? Or tell me a little bit about the teaching environment. So the teaching environment is designed to give children a space that they can learn and feel welcomed. It's designed to have equipment where it's encouraging development for infants, for toddlers, and for preschool. So it does look a lot like an outside daycare. We mm-hmm. utilize that model because we know that that encourages children to feel safe and to start building healthy attachments. Yeah. When people come into shelter, they don't typically have all those elements that are really necessary for a child to develop. So having puzzles and toys and manipulatives allows a child to be free and to start to develop on those milestones that are really important for a child to start engaging with others. So our environment does look a lot like an outside daycare. And how many kids would you be looking after when you were you know, in that role? Well, we follow typical standards. We look for a proper ratio because our intention is to provide quality care. One teacher can care for three infants. 
one teacher can care for four toddlers, a teacher can care for six preschoolers, and a typical day is about 15 children in a classroom. It really is like any other daycare center in the city, sir. Well, it has some things that are very different. We don't have a continuous roster, right? So our children can be there three days. Our children could be there in the length of stay that they're in shelter. But we definitely start having those conversations with family very early on about permanencies, not just permanent housing, but it's also permanent services. And so that includes daycares and schools and community-based programs. We want to make sure that we start to have those conversations with our family to find things that are permanent and stable for them. So in our environment, we don't have a child in our program consistently for a long amount of time. It Mm -hmm. could be that they stay with us for a short amount of time, but that short amount of time creates such warm and inviting opportunities for children. There's a lot of insecurities very early coming into shelter, both for the child and the parent. Well, the the kids are so young. How old are the kids that you're looking after? What's their age range? Well, all children under the age of 17 are considered to be children in shelter. Yeah. In our child care programs, they're under the age of five. So they could be either very young infants Mm -hmm. and they can be preschoolers that are starting to transition into schools. How much do they understand about their situation at that point? Well, you know, in development, you really, you know, you're running on an assessment or an observation. It impacts children. It impacts their development, the fear that they are dealing with, that it's not easily expressed by a child is usually shared by different behaviors, right? So a child that in a typical environment can probably transition a lot faster because they know and understand what's happening next. Our families and our children sometimes don't know what happens next. A lot of the things are very spontaneous. When they come into shelter, it's either usually really late at night. They don't get a chance to know the changes in their environment. So I can say that maybe they can't convey it in a language perspective, but they can convey it in behaviors. There's a lot of anxieties that children demonstrate when they're dealing with homelessness. So it really depends on how you engage and give that child an opportunity to feel secure. You're dealing with caring for a lot of kids who've probably been through some trauma. It's definitely a lot of exposure to trauma, and homelessness is one of the traumas that our children have faced. I mean, you mentioned anxiety, but how else does that manifest with kids in these classrooms or in these daycare centers? It manifests sometimes with language development. You know, children are very reluctant to sometimes share or express themselves. They don't want to talk. They can be very resistant to speaking. Um, I must say that our children are resilient. They are very passionate, young, normal children dealing with an unfortunate circumstance. So the way we can see that possibly there's delays in what typical milestones that children their age should be at a level and a phase. But the encouragement, definitely you start to see those progresses. Is part of the job getting kids to open up? Absolutely. There's a difference between asking someone how you're doing today than asking them how they're feeling. And so part of our routine is to ask a child, how are you feeling today? We want them to be in tune with what feelings are so that we can also encourage them to understand that fear is okay, sadness is okay, happiness is okay. Yeah. It sounds to me like you speak those words to kids. Like that's something you you say to children almost. Absolutely. That's the way we greet both our children and their parents. Yeah. 
how are you feeling today? And sadness is okay. Like that's the Absolutely. We ask them to put it on their feelings charts. Um, we have feelings charts in our classrooms so that children are able to identify what happiness looks like, what sadness looks like. And it allows us to really be able to develop what our day with that child would be. Is identifying what happiness feels like something that's hard for some of these kids? Well, sometimes happiness is just coming into an environment that's for them right? Yeah. An environment that's designed specifically for them. Happiness can be that mom got up this morning and dropped me off to a place where there's other children dealing with the same circumstance as I am. So happiness has different levels, but for us, success mm-hmm. is just a mother willing to allow us to have engagement with their child and to start to invite these questions of what feelings are like. Is it sometimes hard for your mother's to allow you to kind of take care of their kids? Is it something they're hesitant about? Well, there's trust issues, right? There's people that come in with stereotypes or stigmas of what homelessness and what the environments of shelters are like. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we definitely have to start off with is building trust with a parent. You know, homelessness does not discriminate. Homelessness can be a variety of different things. It could be a mother that just reunified with her children from foster care and she's developing an attachment or he's developing an attachment with his children. Um, And so allowing them to trust us at that very vulnerable stage of coming into shelter is definitely an element that we have to start building immediately with families. If a mom is hesitant to put her kid or kids in your hands, what do you say to her? How do you build that trust? You know, you build trust from the moment of saying that you understand the fear. Mm -hmm. You understand the reluctance that they may have. And you tell them what you're going to do. What is the day going to be look look like? And that we have an open door policy that whenever they feel like they need to peek in on their children or have an update on their children, we're welcome to do that. It's holding their hands and walking alongside them during this change and transition. Are they ever afraid that someone's going to take their kids away? At times they are. But that's not what we're built off. We're built off of providing a stable and safe environment. And so I think, you know, the room speaks for itself. The engagement that you have at someone at the door of greeting them in the morning and asking them what their day was like, what their night was like, Mm -hmm. what are their needs? Are their children hungry? Are they okay? What is their day going to look like? I think it allows them to start really feeling connected. You know, typical daycares, people drop off their children and they just move along their day. We have an understanding of what what happened the night before. We have an understanding how long they've been in shelters and what's happening day to day. And what leads the women at your shelter into homelessness? What kinds of situations are they dealing with that bring them to that point? Well, there's different circumstances. There's domestic violence issues. There's economic issues, financial issues. There's unforeseen disasters. Mm -hmm. There's employment issues, right? Affordable housing in the city of New York. There's so many issues. It can vary, but there's circumstances that come um, very unforeseen. Usually people try to find every option before they arrive to shelter, but there are different issues. They've they've lived with family or tried living with friends before they, they resort to the shelter? You know, people describe it as couch surfing. It's not a game. It's not an app, right? It's not subway surfing. It's people looking for a safe environment before they come into shelter. They utilize every resource that they can um, because it takes a lot of ego to say that you need help. It takes someone to really make sure that they find the environment that can provide for their children. And so 
The circumstances are very different. They're very vast. But we can say that there's a lot of women dealing with domestic violence or individuals dealing with domestic violence. Yeah. There's substance abuse. There's mental health issues. So there could be various circumstances that bring families into homelessness. Sometimes it's just the lack of a supportive network, right, of families yeah. and understanding. Sometimes it's just not having that safety net. They've run out of people who can help. Possibly. Yeah, and you guys are the ones who are there to help. And so then we become their safety net. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Take me inside the shelter. What does it look like? So wind shelters are very different. We're located within the four boroughs at the moment. Four. So we're getting we're not including Staten Island? Not yet, but we're coming close. Um, <laughs> the four real boroughs. <laughs> well, we're coming to a theater near you. Okay. Um, you know, families come into a building, a structural building that's very clean and secure. Mm-hmm. And we have security guards that typically greet our families at the door when they arrive. They're safe. Yeah. They're clean. Or should I be picturing something like a dorm or is it... You know, does it look like a school building on the inside? What An office building? Like, what is the environment? So they can look like apartment buildings. They could look like school buildings. Okay. It all depends on the different and the different sites that we have. So okay. they're all developed very different. We have one building that looks like a school yeah. with tall ceilings. Most of them are units, uh, dorm-like units or studio efficiencies that have kitchenettes and a bathroom. One of the things that every client has a key to their door so they have some privacy. And I think that's really important. And then the daycare rooms, the one you worked in when you were sort of on the ground, what, what was that room like? So the room is designed to be an open space. It's carved out to have defined areas that are developmentally appropriate for children. So we have infant areas, we have toddler areas, and we have preschool areas. And every area is designed to have equipment that is supportive and encouraging to a child's development and interest. So you got the games, you got the toys. And we have soft, cozy corners where children, if they're feeling sadness or fear, can go into a corner and find themselves with a caregiver and feel safe, can express their feelings, read a book. They can just soothe the the need. How long were you working in the classrooms for? For about 20 years. For about 20 years? Yes. As a caretaker the whole time, or were you sort of doing more oversight? Well, I did caretaking. As a director, I still did the hands-on. You can't really understand what the needs of families are unless you're directly in the environment. I can't lead a team of educators if I don't understand what families feel at the time of arrival, what children's anxieties are like, or what the sensations of 
what's happening, you know, how do we develop a more inclusive environment for everyone? So I'm one of those individuals that likes to get on the floor and be with the children and see how they're developing. Now, in your sort as a director, I want to learn a little bit about your day, what you do from the morning till the end of work. So where do you start? So when I arrive at work, I start to think about what is my day going to look like to empower these families? I currently supervise for the supportive services. We have a Thrive initiative with social workers on site. So I look at incidents that may be happening the night before and how do we follow up and support those families to have optimal outcomes. It could be with a family that went to a hospital and a child that is possibly recovering. How does a social worker just make sure that the parent thinks about their employment? Do they think about alternative options? And how do they feel with that anxiety of having to deal with homelessness and still the day-to-day circumstance of being a parent? So that's social work. Then what else you got to think about that day? Then I also think about income building. How do I get these families to secure employment, to gain um, higher wages? How do I develop partners that look at our families as individuals and not just as homeless individuals. And is that something the social workers are, are doing too? Or that, is that that's a different program? That's a different program yeah. that's launched by our income specialist. And they are job readiness. They develop job readiness opportunities like interview mocking, resume writing. They develop workshops where parents can feel secure about learning the trades. We have computer literacy workshops on site where parents can start to develop on their understanding of computer literacy, of developing new skills. You're thinking about the social workers who are kind of overseeing their day-to-day and making sure that your clients are doing all right. Then you've got the income building, trying to people get into jobs. And then you've got the education part of it. And then there's the fourth part. What's the fourth? The fourth part is working with our youth, our school-aged children, which is a Mm -hmm. very um, unique environment. School-aged children can tell us the traumas. They can express the fears, and and they're more evident. Teenagers living in shelters are dealing with a lot of the inconsistencies of what a normal teenage experience should be like, right? They can't have sleepovers, or they have specific curfews, or... They're worried about what others are going to assume what homelessness is like. And so there's fears that there could be bullying or that they could be looked at differently. How many teens and, and school-age kids are there in your shelters? So in regards to children, we have 2,700 children under the age of 17. 2,700? 2,700. Living within the system? Living at when? And how many of those would you say are under five and how many would you say are over? So I would say that the majority are under five. I mean, every circumstance, it, it fluctuates. And we can have a very high volume of teenagers, and that can, from day to day, very much change. I would say we have at least about a good 1,500 children that are within school age. Wow. It's a lot. It is a lot. And do you work directly with them still? or? So they go to school, right? We have... Department of Education liaisons on site that help us make sure that the children are located in schools, that there's transportation in place for them so that they can commute back and forth to schools. So they have normal routines. But what we do is that we add supplemental resources for them. So mm-hmm. if children come home from school and need tutoring or they just need a place where they could be on their own with other children dealing with the same circumstance so that there's a sense of inclusion and community. Yeah, That's what our after-school programs have. 
you, you have kids at every stage of development growing up in these shelters for a while. Absolutely. What's the average stay, you would say? So the average stay for families is typically 11 months to 15 months. Oh, wow. These kids are doing more than a year of their life often, living within one of your shelters. This is correct. Which is, I mean, for a teenager, that's... For, that's a for very a long amount of time. <laughs> it's huge. I mean, it's it's home. It is home. You're building a home for kids and families at all stages of their lives. Right. Or their early lives. We are. Yeah. We're definitely a part of their major milestones. How many of these kids would you say you are personally getting to know at this point? You know, you try to make sure that you know as many yeah. as possible. Whenever you're on the floor at one of the sites, you want to make sure that you greet them and you see how they're doing. Are there any elements that we can provide for them? You know, people need to be acknowledged. And I think, you know, offering them just a greeting in the morning, you know, seeing them off to school and seeing a parent just typically rushing like any other parent, getting their child to a school, you know, measuring their time, what the commute is going to be like, you know, what we want to do is be a part of their lives. We want to make memorable experiences. And some of our classroom environments do that. Many of our children have had their first times with us. So their first time skating with us, their first time baking cookies with us, because these are elements that are really important in our development. So we want our children to have those same experiences when they're with us. And we want to be a part of their family. Teenagers misbehave. Kids misbehave. How do you deal with, uh, for lack of a better term, problem kids? You know, someone who's maybe getting into trouble separate from the issues with their family. Well, you know, there are challenges, and it depends on the individual. You know, children may mis misbehave, and they may have moments of just being redirected. I think it's just giving a moment, a child an opportunity to pause and to think and do it alongside of them. So we don't think about when we're in our environment, we don't encourage children to have to be isolated when they do something wrong. Our environments are supposed to be encouraging, inviting, and supportive. Yeah. And so if something happens where a child has a moment of what someone would think that was a bad behavior, we think it as a moment of reflection. Let's think about what just happened. How could we do that different? Yeah. Because we want to teach our children how to cope. How do you cope with the stresses without being impulsive? I want to be sensitive because we're, we're talking about kids who are dealing with the worst possible circumstances. They're like we said, they're dealing with trauma. But you know, how often do you, you know teens who are living with you get into fights you know, with each other? How often is there, do they run into you know, violence, that kind of thing? You know, our environments, we really don't see that much. Yeah. You know, there are misunderstandings. There are opportunities where you just don't agree, right? Yeah. Or that you can have an impulsive response. But reactions and the reactions from staff to have a child really look at how do you do this response different? You know, although they have come from a lot of violence and yeah. they have been exposed to different forms of violence— our environments are very soothing. They're very relaxing. We're very mindful. Um, we use an approach that's called an emotional responsive approach where we think about the child, right? We have to always think about what they've been exposed to and how could that exposure and that trauma 
have an impact on what they're currently showing us and demonstrating in their behaviors. But it's not necessarily the rule. Our children have very normal behaviors. They're very typical children dealing with a very unforeseen circumstance. So just reminding them, giving them a second chance. It's just like a computer. You just reboot it and you start all over again. (laughs) Um, It doesn't have to be punitive. I think, you know, second chances are really important. And we do that. You know, coming into shelter is a second chance for a family, right? Youths need to also have a second chance. They need to have an opportunity to do things over. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You come in, like you said, you start thinking about you know, the four different buckets that you have. What do you start doing? What's your first task? Well, how do I enhance the services that we currently have and make them better? Yeah, that's what's on your mind. That's what I'm thinking. I want to make sure that our children have the same experience as any other child living outside of shelter. They're entitled to that and they deserve that. I think about the families. How do I make sure that they feel a sense of inclusion, that they don't feel that the services that we provide are not going to be the same that any other child should be entitled to, so, or themselves? Are you getting updates on what happened the night before or or what's coming for the day? Who are you talking to? So we have an army of staff. Um, We have people that provide security. And so they deliver a lot of the information that happens overnight. We review what families have come in, what families have come out. We look at incidents that maybe have occurred. And we, we make sure that new families that have come in, we have a specific time frame so that we greet them and we can give them an understanding of who we are as an organization in a timely fashion. I think um, initial intake is very important. So yeah. when a family arrives, they come typically at random hours, and they're greeted by our security. Um, A security does, um, they're all trained by trauma-informed care. So giving and surrendering a family's dignity at the door is really important. So telling them, welcome to win, you know, we're going to take you to your unit, we'll let you see the unit, make sure that it's reasonable and accommodating to them. We make sure that they have, you know, when people are coming into shelter, they're downsizing their families, they're downsizing all their belongings into typically two small garbage bags per person. So downsizing your family into garbage bags. Yeah, that's hard. That must be really challenging. Most of us can sort our, when we're moving into boxes and label them. So each individual can come in with two bags. You're taking what you can carry. That's your life. Absolutely. And you said that families typically come in at, random hours, where are they coming from? Are they being referred from an intake shelter or how how are they getting to you? So the city of New York, the Department of Homeless Services has a hub called PATH, Prevention Assistance 
temporary housing unit located in the Bronx. So all families have to go to this center to explain the circumstances that led them to homelessness. There's an assessment time, typically 10 days, where the city of New York is assessing their living history, where they've come from, where they were staying, and what the cir- circumstances that brought them into shelter. They provide documentation. And then they send them to you, just they put them in a car and send them to you? So then there's like a lottery system, right? So there's wherever there's a vacancy. Currently, we're dealing with a very high number of people in shelter. So yeah. I mean, in most of our shelters at Wynn, we're at 96% capacity. So we have, you know, whenever we receive a family, we are already warned that they're coming. And so we develop a system where we can have all the expectations that they need upon arrival. So it's a lottery system that the city of New York has. So they put them in the lottery. They get told they're going to win. And then they show up to you at, when you say random hours, I mean, is it usually during the day or is it, can it be in the middle of the night or... It can be, you know, be any hours within 20, we're a 24-hour facility. So a family can come between our business hours or they can come late at night. So you can have a family showing up with all their belongings and trash bags at 2 a.m. And you've got to make them feel like the world is a warm and comforting place. This is true. Oh, that's a, that's a hard job. Well, it's a job that yeah. can be done when you have passionate individuals yeah. that know that we're here to help a community that's dealing with a very challenging circumstance. So in the morning, you're, you're hearing about the people who've come in and hearing about the intake numbers and who's, who's arrived. Right. So we can look at the family composition, how many adults, how many children. We make sure that they're in reasonable accommodations. Um, if there's any disabilities, that they're in the right unit, the right environment. If there's something that looks like it's not reasonable for that family, we make sure that we communicate back. We make sure that they have kits like linens, pillows, and beds. We make sure they have brooms and mops and buckets. We make sure that they have food. We have food pantries on site. Is this something you're personally doing? Because I'm hearing we a lot. Is this a conversation you're having with with staff saying, okay, you know, are these families taken care of? Or is it something you're sort of delegating to people? When I say we, we at Wynn are very inclusive with each other. There's no one department that works in silos. We're all aiming to work with families and give them the best outcome. So it is part of my job, but there's others. There's program directors that support each individual site. So I definitely look at it as being a part of the intake process, and I am a part of that. So you're talking to the program directors, too? I speak to program directors on a regular basis. I speak to social workers. I speak to security. I speak to maintenance. I speak to head teachers. So you're kind of checking in with all the different people over the course of your day? Yes. So where is your office? So my office is in the headquarters of WINS organization down in State Street. Is that attached to a shelter or is it separate from the shelters? Well, that is separate from the shelters. Okay. So are you going and visiting the shelters typically now or? On a regular basis. Yes, I do. Is that that an everyday thing for you now? I would say I at least visit sites at least twice in a week. What are you doing on a site visit? So from the moment I get in, I I walk in through the door, I see what the climate and culture is like. Mm -hmm. What is the experience of a family when they come in? Most buildings we enter through a security um, area where there's security guards that greet us. We make sure that we show our identification because we want to make sure that we have a safe and secure environment. We walk into the buildings. You see the social services department where families are coming in to check in and see and set targets and goals for them. 
So we have case managers that help our clients. Mm -hmm. They develop on an intake process. They share where they are in regards to medicals. What are their needs in regards to employment? What are their needs in regards to their children? And we start setting goals. Housing is a very important element, right? So we're always thinking about when families come in, they're utilizing the resources of our case managers, of our social workers, mm-hmm. of how do we start setting targets for housing. You said you're looking at the environment, trying to think about how it feels to be there for a family. What's something that you're specifically looking for? You know, seeing what the children are feeling. What It could be that a child is crying. It could be that a child is hungry for food, but they could be hungry for nurturing. So how are teachers able, as caregivers, give this to a child and build healthy attachments? I go to the, when we have no school and we have a camp program, I go to see how the children are learning with STEM activities, where they can start to learn with creative learning, the enthusiasm of learning things in different ways. I go to college tours. I see how our youth are planning for their futures and hopefully breaking the cycle of homelessness. You've got kids on college tours. Yes, we do. And you go along with them. We play a part of going along with them. We want to be a mentor to them. We want to show them what our experiences were like. You know, we could also be in a lot of the same circumstances, and we want to make sure that our families know that we're here to help them assess and um, that we, too, have been a lot in, in those same circumstances. You know, some of us, we have dysfunctional families. We have, you know, we've dealt with domestic violence ourselves in different forms, um, and so sharing those experiences so that they know that they're not alone. When you're visiting classrooms, are you ever giving kind of teachers tips nowadays? Yes, I do. <laughs> what's what's a regular tip you give them? So a tip is, you know, this child seems to be very happy in this environment. Tell me how this child is developing. Mm-hmm. How is this child's initiative? Do they take initiative? Do they share? How do we encourage a child to share with other children? How do we encourage children to use language. We talk about community walks. How do we start to engage our children in the community? We go to community playgrounds. We Mm -hmm. go to community walks where children can see the trees and they can see the different playgrounds in in our area. So it's more talking to teachers about their plans for kids and plans for their classes. Well, we develop lesson plans. They're themed lesson plans. But we also utilize strategies that have techniques of having children develop their social and emotional skills, because I think those are imperative. What's an emergency in your job? An emergency is a child that possibly responds with running away because of the stress of shelter. Runaways? Runaways. What, What do you do in that circumstance? We help parents figure out how do we get these children? How do we help the parent make decisions? How do we look at getting the child back? How do we make contact? And we look at the stresses so we can come up with different ways of adding additional supports to our program. So when we start to see that children are responding to the stigma and they're running away from the circumstance, you know, we typically know that they run to a relative's house or they run to a friend's house. And we we bring them back and say, what was lacking? What was the issue? Sometimes it's just, I can't have friends over. Right. Yeah. That's when we start to say, well, we need to have more resources for youth. We need to have more opportunities where youth don't have to be that impulsive. And then we think about the parents. I mean, our social workers develop workshops with parents about what are the stresses that young adults deal with when they're here. I mean, it doesn't happen on a day to day, but it could be one of the stresses where children respond that way. 
So when a kid runs away, it's step one is figuring out how to get them back. Absolutely. Do you or staff play an active role in that or is it more giving advice to the parent on how to do it? At when we play a very active role. Are you sending a social worker or what do you guys do at that point? Well, typically it's 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 not something that's a very long length amount of time. Right? Yeah. It's a response where let's take a breath. Let's think about where this child could be. Let's utilize all the resources. Let's make sure that we utilize all the resources that can bring the child back. And typically they're running to a relative's house or they're running to a friend's. It's not for long amount of times Yeah, no. that it happens. I mean, there could be also the stresses of family disagreements. That's an urgency. When the stresses mm-hmm. of homelessness causes families to respond. Yeah, families right? fight. And families fight. All families fight. Well, there's disagreements, yeah. right? There's, yeah. there's circumstances that really, you know, a child doesn't have a room to, you know, you don't have a room to go slam behind you and have a moment. They're all in the same space. So, you know, I think... It can have moments of very high stressors. Yeah, that's got to add to the pressure because you said each family sort of in its own space, but it, it's a dorm room. It's a dorm room. How, how big is each room? It's a studio. It's an efficiency. Yeah. It has beds. It has a bathroom. It has a kitchenette. How big would you say the typical family is who arises, a, you know, a mother and one or two kids? or? So our family sizes could be very different. Yeah. The typical is a mother and two or three children, but they could be as big as a two parents and four children or maybe more. You might have a mother and three kids living in a studio. That might be the same. as a, that's, There are a lot of families living in that circumstance in New York, but that that's pressure. I mean, you have space to yourself, essentially, like you're saying. Right. So personal space is really important. (laughs) One of the reasons why having a child care and a recreation program are vital. Yeah. Because that is how you get your time to yourself, is you do the after-school program. It's an outlet. Mm -hmm. You oversee the, you said, income building services or helping people find work. How do you do that? What goes into that? So we developed a program um, that's usually private funded. Um, We do a lot of fundraising for that. It's designed to let people see what their qualifications are. What are their work histories? Let me tell you, the majority of people come in with a work experience, having employment in place. You can't plan for permanent housing in the city of New York if you don't have employment. We think about people starting with part-time jobs and moving to full-time jobs Mm -hmm. or people starting at minimum wage and increasing to higher wages so that they can meet affordable housing or they can just meet housing prices, the market. Yeah, period. Right. So, you know, we utilize strategies of stages of change. Um, Mm -hmm. A person needs to know where they are. Are they contemplating? What are their goals? Where are they in regards to where they want to be, where do they see themselves, and how they can obtain better gains. What is step one typically for a woman who is living in shelter when you're trying to help her find a job? We do an assessment. We ask them what their work experiences are like. We develop resumes with them immediately so that mm-hmm. we can see it on paper so that we can help them advocate for themselves and look at what are the strategies that we can put in place to help them find the optimal outcome in regards to employment. So we partner with them. We gather a story, right? Yeah. In that assessment, we start to put the puzzle together and really start to design how we're going to find or maintain employment. How many of these women are already working? So I would say that 
we have a good half of our population, about 56% of women, are working. Oftentimes, you have a working mother of two, and your job is to get them into a, I guess, help them find a higher paying job at that point or a better job? What are you, when you're dealing with someone who already is working, what are you, what are you doing then to help them build more income? That's what we do. We're there to help them build more income. So it could be increasing their wages. It could yeah. be increasing their hours from a part-time job of 20 hours a week to a full-time job. We're looking at increasing benefits so that they leave with medical benefits. We're looking at providing gains, any form of gain in regards to employment. That's just so interesting to me because it's not just about getting them into any job. It's actually beyond that. It's saying, okay, you're working. We need to get you to the next level. It's career development in a way. It is career development. It's teaching if there's someone that doesn't have computer literacy, how do we teach them in their environments that they're living in to have access to computers, to not be fearful of technology? Is that a problem frequently? Well, I mean, it's an element that people need. Yeah. It's often there are barriers, you know, people are limited with Wi-Fi, right? And yeah. you need Wi-Fi to apply for jobs. So we have computer labs on site where people can utilize the computers to not only for housing, but for employment. Mm -hmm. So we try to have every resource that can possibly be an obstacle in place for these families. What's the most rewarding part of your day? Seeing a family leave to permanent housing and yeah. knowing that they're leaving with the tools and the independence that they need to stay out of the circumstance of coming back to homelessness, the joy that, that children know that they're going to their own environments, that children are grateful, that they've, they've shared some of their development milestones with us, and that they will remember us forever as yeah. a part of their lives. Thank you for coming in and chatting. Thank you for having us. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. And as always, you can send me an email at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamyn Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm Jordan Wiseman. Catch us next week.